Uh, it's been really delightful to be with you all this weekend to look at Scripture, to look at it closely, to stop for just a moment and turn down the volume on what we think the Bible says to allow it to speak for itself. And it does speak for itself. Amen? Amen. The Lord is good. So the passage that was read this morning, uh, uh, the earlier one was from Ezekiel and then from Revelation, and the two things they have in common is this idea of taking and eating. Now, eating seems to be a theme of sorts for today, because even in the Sunday school hour, as Mario was praying for us, he said the word partake, may we partake of this time. That's a way of eating right? And then the songs that we're singing talk about this very sort of thing. The scripture that's been presented talks about this very thing. The table that is set before us speaks of this very thing. The, the thing we'll do after worship speaks of this very thing. Hallelujah! <laughs> for lunch after church. And the message for today comes from this book, which is entitled, Eat This Book. Now, let me say this, uh, the author, Eugene Peterson, uh, some of you will know that name, does not mean to eat this book. He's talking about scripture, but I, I, I have to say that the idea of eating a book is a little strange, is it not? Can I get an amen on that? Has anyone ever, by just curious, ever, ever tried to eat a book before? Nobody? Anybody ever chewed a page from a book? There's one right there. You know what? I know somebody else who has. In fact, I have. When I was a junior high kid, middle school kid, I wasn't the best kid. I'm not the best kid still, but better than I was, thank God. But I was like a lot of middle school. How many middle school boys do we have here? All right, we're going to pray for those middle school boys. God bless you. You know, when you're up here reading scripture, I really thought you had it memorized. Then I realized there's a big screen right there you're reading from. <laughs> there's no man behind the curtain, is there? <clears throat> when I was in middle school, one of the things we would do is we would, I don't know if I should tell you this or not, um, we would have spitball fights. So you take a little piece of paper, you chew it up, get it all slobbery, and then you spit it at somebody. Or if you've got a straw, which is a luxury, you shoot it at somebody with high velocity. Well, that's just what we would do. We would also torment substitute teachers. I repented of that years ago. But one particular day uh, in math class as an eighth grader, we were tormenting a blessed substitute teacher, poor woman, and uh, for some reason, every time she would turn to write something on the, on the chalkboard, and that's what we had back then was a chalkboard. Kids, go home and ask your parents what that is. We would sh shoot or throw spitwads at the wall over by the window. And pretty soon there was a little collection of those. We were having quite the good time. And then, this is being recorded, right? I'm not going to mention his name. But one of my buddies tears out of his notebook an entire sheet of notebook paper and he puts it into his mouth and he gums it up 
And when the teacher wasn't looking, he hurled that at the wall and it exploded and stuck there like a giant snowball. I was laughing so hard I couldn't breathe and I was trying to hide behind the girl in front of me so the teacher wouldn't see me, just falling out. One of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Don't do this. Don't ever do that. But the taste of paper, there's nothing sweet as honey about that. It's awful. I'm going to put something in my mouth. I'd rather put something in my mouth much tastier than that. Amen? When I say amen and you agree, you say amen. Amen? I'll tell you what I like to put in my mouth. I like cherries. Anybody here like cherries? Yeah, amen. <laughs> there it is. <clears throat> so when I was uh, in high school and, and, and into college, growing up in rural Indiana, I worked summers for a farming family. That's how I got through college. Loved the farm. But at cer a certain point in the year, uh, the uh, Tom's wife, uh, Janet, would go out into the backyard and pick a bunch of cherries from her tree and she would do it quickly before the birds would get to them and she would come in and she would make something with those cherries now what I want to suggest to you is this this ties into some of the work we were doing over the weekend cherries are the content of something delicious right they're the material they're the raw goods they're the stuff of tasty things now that tasty thing can take a variety of forms. We can take cherries and we can make them into jam and jelly. We can take cherries and make them into the form of preserves. We can take cherries and squeeze them to make juice. We can take cherries and make them into the form of a cobbler. But Janet did none of those. Janet chose the form of a pie. Or as we say in Kentucky, a pie, right? A delicious, savory, succulent pie. And so the way the routine would typically happen is that Tom and I would come in from the workday at noon for lunch. That was the big meal. They called it dinner, hot and sweaty and, and ready for a break. We'd come into the air conditioning, which was delightful. Tom would take off his boots. I would take off my boots. Tom would go wash his hands and I would go wash my hands. We'd sit down at the table. And we would have lunch, and a really good lunch. And at 12.30, Janet would clear the table and turn on the radio to the daily broadcast of Paul Harvey standing, saying, stand by for news. Anybody remember, hello Americans, this is Paul Harvey. Amen? And we'd listen to Paul Harvey talk about Roach Proof, P-R-U-F-E, the one that's spelled funny, page three right? We'd listen to Paul Harvey as Janet, on those very special of all days, would pull out a holy sacrament from the oven, a cherry pie that she had just made. And it looked awful. I mean, it was bubbling up, gooey, sticky, a mess. And she would bring that pie to the table and she would cut off a big old slice for me and a big old slice for Tom. And then she would put a big dollop of Schwann's vanilla ice cream right on top of it. And that ice cream would start to melt and swirl and ooze. And I'd get a big old spoonful of that and put it into my mouth. And that 
cool, sweet creaminess of the ice cream would meet with the bitter, tart sweetness of those fresh cherries, and I didn't want to swallow it. Hallelujah! God is good. And it's almost lunchtime, preacher. You're killing us. Man, that was good. I wanted to savor every bite. But Eugene Peterson would have us eat not a cherry pie, but a book. The book. The book of books, greatest seller of all time, the word of the living God. He's not saying, read this book. He's saying, eat it. Put it into your mouth and chew on it and hold it there and savor it. Now, unlike the strong angel in Revelation who says it will be sweet in your mouth but sour in your stomach, we may experience a different outcome. What might that outcome look like? Well, Eugene Peterson is, um, was a pastor and a scholar and a translator of the Bible from the original languages. And he begins this book talking about his seven-year-old grandson, and he sees in this seven-year-old grandson named Hans a parable to really describe a condition that he observes among most church people. And I'm just, throughout this sermon, I'm going to read some passages from this, if that's okay. He says, my wife picked up Hans, seven years old, a grandson, at noon on an October Saturday at Holy Nativity Church. Hans had been attending a class in preparation for his first communion. They drove off, headed to a local mu museum that was featuring a special children's exhibit on gemstones. On the way, they stopped at a city park to eat their lunches. The two of them ate while sitting on a park bench, ha uh, Hans chattering all the while. He had been uh, chattering nonstop ever since leaving the church. Lunch was completed. His was a lettuce and mayonnaise sandwich that he had made himself. Hans shifted away from his grandmother, faced out into the park, took from his book bag a New Testament that he had just been given by his pastor. He opened it, he held it before his eyes, and he proceeded to read, moving his eyes back and forth across the page in a devout but uncharacteristic silence. After a long minute, he closed the testament and he returned it to his book bag and said, okay, Grandma, I'm ready. Let's go to the museum. Now, what might this possibly have to do with reading Scripture? I think that Peterson is suggesting that the way seven-year-old Hans went about reading that New Testament is the way we sometimes go about reading our Bibles. Our eyes move across the page but we don't really understand. In fact, Hans, seven years old, had not learned to read yet. He was doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's a holy thing. It's a special book, and it deserves special treatment. But he had no idea what was between the covers. Am I getting into your business right now? Yeah. So... One of the things that Eugene Peterson often does is he'll look at the world around him and he'll, he'll make observations and he'll draw analogies with the spiritual life. 
And one of the things he talks about is watching his dog gnaw on a bone. That dog would just gnaw and savor and chew and grind and low growl and murmur in delight as that dog would just savor that bone. And then um, something occurred to Peterson uh, in Scripture, and here's what what he observes. He says that just as that dog was gnawing on a bone, a passage from Isaiah, let me pull that up here, um, comes, comes to his mind. And it is uh, Isaiah 31, beginning at verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. As a lion or a young lion growl, growls over his prey. And when a band of shepherd is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their no- noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Here's what um, Peterson's keying in on, this idea of a lion growling over its prey. Now, what would this this have to do with anything? What What he observes is this, that in Psalm 1, the writer of the psalm is comparing a righteous person to a wicked person. And one of the differences between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous meditates on God's word day and night. So we've got two ideas here. We've got growling and we've got meditating. What do these two have to do with one another? Well, interestingly, they both are being translated from the same word in Hebrew. Hagah. Just as a lion growls over its prey, so too should we growl over Scripture, gnaw on Scripture, savor Scripture, remain undistracted by anything else. To gnaw, to growl, to meditate. Um, He he shares this... uh, He shares this, and let me uh, in turn pass it along with you. He's talking about describing a particular kind of reading that's very different from what young Hans did as a seven-year-old. He says, there is only one way of reading that is congruent with our holy scriptures, writing that trusts in the power of words to penetrate our lives and create truth and beauty and goodness, writing that requires a reader who, in the words of Rainer Maria Rilke, does not always remain bent over his pages. He often leans back and closes his eyes over a line he has been reading again, and its meaning spreads through his blood. This is the kind of reading named by our ancestors as Lectio Divina, or spiritual reading. Reading that enters our souls as food enters our stomachs, spreads through our blood, and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. Just a few pages later, he goes on and he says this. St. John, the author of the book of Revelation uh, from which we just read, he said this endlessly fascinating early church apostle and pastor and writer, walks up to the strong angel and says, give me the book. The angel hands it over. Here it is. Eat it. 
Don't read from it. Don't write anything down. Don't take notes. Eat it. Eat the book. And John does. He eats the book. He not just reads it. He got it into his nerve endings, his reflexes, his imagination. The book that he ate was Holy Scripture. One of the things that I'll share with you, uh, as if I've not shared enough already, is that for Christmas this year, one of my boys gave me a book of puzzles, like logic puzzles. And it sat on my nightstand for quite a while. And then out of a commitment to honoring the spirit of the gift, I thought, well, I'll, I'll work a puzzle. And it was a puzzle book about baseball. And I love baseball. Let me tell you I love baseball. And so I began working these puzzles, and I quickly found that I was drawn into the puzzles. I've been working on one of them at level four for two weeks. And then something struck me to really read the introduction to that book. There was an introduction to the book about, of these puzzles. And what it was doing is it was explaining what we're learning from neuroscience these days about the nature of thinking. Now, a hundred years ago, we weren't absolutely sure how food went into our bodies, was digested, metabolized into our system to become our tissue and our strength and our energy. We, we didn't quite understand that. We understand that now. So when we say you are what you eat, it's because what goes in is what comes out, in a sense, right? You eat well, you become well. You are what you eat. Here's something that we're learning through the research of neuroscientists is that when we see and observe and hear and think, consider, commit things by memory to, to the re random access memory up here, right? That there are pathways, neural pathways that become formed in our brain. What science has shown us is that people who use certain parts of their brains actually see those parts of their brain growing larger, just like muscle. Isn't that interesting? A study was done on London taxi drivers, and the part of their brain that they used to figure out the shortest route to get to their destination amidst all that crazy traffic is bigger than the average person. Isn't that interesting? So I'm working through these puzzles. I'm reading this introduction, and I'm seeing that what we see and hear and think with our minds actually changes us into different people. Think about all the unholy stuff we could look at in this world. All the unholy things we could listen to in this world. And how think how they form us to be certain kinds of people. As a former youth pastor, my students would often say, well, you know, I like this music, but I, I know it's not really good, but it doesn't, it doesn't really affect me. Really? Really? Hmm. I think scientists would disagree at this point. So as we're thinking about all the unholy things that we could observe in this world, I want you to think about all the holy things we could observe and think about how they could make us into different people.
I'm thinking about one thing in particular, and that's the Holy Word. What if instead of going into the Word and just sort of plundering it for bits and pieces, we sat with it and let it begin to work on us? What if instead of just reading it quickly so that our eyes pass over the pages so we can check off our daily reading requirement, we leaned back, closed our eyes, and just sat with the text? What might that do to our our brains? What might that do to our being? We might be formed into different kinds of people. Amen? Amen. I'm not saying that all this stuff is just now happening. I'm saying we just now understand the, the, the practicality of it. This has always been true. We just didn't know the how. So reading Scripture is what we would call a formative experience. It is a forming enterprise and an exercise that can change us into a different shape. So let me offer this to you uh, from his book as well. We were talking over the weekend um, about how in different ways the words of Scripture really have a certain shape to them. So that we're, we're interested not just in the content. We're not just interested in the cherries. We're interested in the form. In my case, it was a pie that really got my attention. When words appear on a page, they don't just appear there randomly for us to sort of take and extract meaning from. They appear there in a certain arrangement on purpose, written by the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What we need is a way into this. We need a way into this kind of a reading. Let me offer you this. Um, Sorry, I just lost my bookmark. Well, I'll come back to it here in just a minute. I apologize for that. No, it's, give me a second. I know it's here. I've got, I know I've got it. Here we go. Peterson says, Christians feed on Scripture. It doesn't say they read on Scripture. They feed on it. Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community just as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it. Take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized. Right? It becomes a part of us. It becomes metabolized into acts of love. Cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' names, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. That's a good word, don't you think? The words that are formed on the page enter us and they give our form a new shape. You with me? Eat this book. Eat this book. The author of 
the book of Revelation is presumably the author of the Gospel of John. And his name is, wait for it. <laughs> How does John begin his Gospel? Some of you know this, so I've already given you a hint. How does he begin his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down the page to verse 14. You ready? Are you ready? And the Word became flesh. That's remarkable. What's even more remarkable is this, at the end of the book of John, as Jesus was eating with his disciples, his friends, his colleagues, his brothers in the Lord, one of whom would doubt him after, after his crucifixion, one of whom would deny him three times, one of whom would betray him into the hands of killers. Even so, Jesus sits at table with them. And he takes the bread, he takes the wine, and he does something new. He says, friends, from this day forward, things are going to be different. I'm giving you this bread as my body that is broken for you. Take and eat. And they did it. And then he took the cup. He said, friends, brothers, colleagues, this is my blood that I pour out willingly for you. I want you to take it. I want you to drink it. This is my body. This is my blood. So a few years ago, something happened in my growing understanding and appreciation of Holy Communion. And it was this, that when we take the bread and the juice in, we are saying, in, in effect, Jesus, enter me. Jesus in me. Not just like junk food that just passes through, you know, burned off quickly and there's nothing left. Not like unholy food that forms us into unholy people, but food that changes us into the image for which we were created, and that is bearers of God himself, made in his likeness. Jesus, don't come be with me. Jesus, don't come be beside me. Jesus, don't just talk to me. Jesus, don't just walk with me. Jesus, come into me and metabolize. Let me digest you. Enter my bloodstream. Enter my tissue. Enter my ligaments, my organs. Transform me. Grow the shape of my mind into the likeness of you, Jesus. For as you and the Father are one, so I want to be one with you, and we be one together to all the world. Amen? That's what I'm after. You want some of that? Do you want some of that? couple more quotes from uh, Peterson here. Let's see here somewhere. I got more quotes than I can do. But I tell you what, when I read a book, I eat it. I slobber all over it and it's a mess. Well, let's hold off on that. Let me tell you a story. 
So I've been here all weekend talking to you all about inductive Bible study. Well, what's that? We can tell you later if you didn't make it this weekend. But inductive Bible study is a way of approaching Scripture so that we can hear it accurately, so that we can see it clearly. We have eyes that see and ears that hear, but do we always get it? We don't. Inductive Bible study is a method, which we learn comes from a Latin word, methodos, which means an avenue, a way, a way of moving towards something. And as followers of Jesus, we follow on his way. We follow in his footsteps one step at a time. Right? So this method has really been developed and published by, by two primary people, one of whom is no longer with us. His name was uh, Dr. Robert Trena, uh, passed away in uh, 2014. And the other was his student, who was my teacher. Luke, did you have Bauer? Yeah. So Luke and I each have had Bauer, and so has Olivia, wherever she went. We, we've had Dr. Bauer. So Dr. David Bauer and Dr. Robert Trainer wrote a book called Inductive Bible Study. And it's really heavy, it's really technical, it's comprehensive, very methodical. And if you just read it, you don't get the spirit that lies behind this thing. I want to close by sharing just a story that I'm sure that Dr. Bauer, David as I know him now, would be fine with me sharing. Um, David is a fine preacher as well as a fine faculty member at Asbury Seminary. He was asked to preach at a camp meeting in Ohio several years ago, and he was preaching that we ought not remain in our comfort zones, but in fact that God sometimes calls us out of our comfort zones. And David became convicted of that, that he was in his own comfort zone. And the thought, strange as it may seem, occurred to him that as a single man approaching 50, he ought to consider adopting a child. And specifically, a child from China. And more specifically, a child from China with special needs. And he did. He adopted young Christopher Bauer at 18 months old. Chris is now a junior in high school and this amazing young man. And I love to see David and Chris together because it's a story of redemption. That word of God changed the shape of David Bauer. And when that happened, we got to see his heart. I think the heart was there all the time. We just didn't see it. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. That's something that I want to partake of. Do you? We are what we eat. The question is, what will we eat? I love that song that we opened with, uh, opened with, Oh, let the ancient words impart, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts, open hands, open minds, open ears. We have come for this moment. Let me conclude by sharing this last word from Peterson's book. I hate this part. Sorry. As we heard earlier, the strong angel was giving instructions to John as part of John's apocalyptic vision. Peterson reminds us that even though the strong angel's word was a command, an expectation, it was also 
an invitation. Come to the table. Come to the table and eat this book. For every word in the book is intended to do something in us. Every Where's da- Daniel? Every word, right? Every word is intended to do something in us. To give us health and wholeness. Vitality and holiness to both our souls and our bodies. May it be. Amen.